Hey, Martin, what we might do is just uh, kick off from the top with um, just a quick run through of your uh, your core market model, if, if you will. All right, then. So we'll start with the core market model. And just to be clear, we started looking at it from a household perspective, right? So there are people looking at loans, there are people looking at banks. We look at households. We run the surveys every week. We have 52,000 households in the survey at any one time. 1,000 new come into the survey each Tuesday, and that information then goes directly into our core market model, which feeds all of the analysis that we do. It goes to the blog, it goes to the industry reports we produce, and it goes to our clients. Uh, but very importantly, it's real-time relative to pretty much all the other surveys that are out there. And, you know, the interesting challenge is when the data is shifting around so much as it is, the question is, how do you deal with that? Because essentially, if you look back over 52 weeks, then, you know, 48 weeks or so perhaps will be less relevant than the last one. So what we've done is to make some modifications to the way our model works to give much greater weighting to the most recent data over the last four to five to six weeks because households, frankly, are in pretty much a lot of stress at the moment. And if you go to the next slide, you can also see that we can slice and dice the data, whether we look at segments from young to old, from uh, you know, affluent to less affluent, whether we look at uh, property status from those who own property or those who are inactive, whether you look at uh, those trying to get into the market or trading up or trading down, or even locationally. And that's important to understand because generic averages, whether it be home price movements or whether it be uh, incomes, tells you absolutely nothing at all about what's really going on. You need to get granular. And so the granularity in our core market model is essentially what we're going to discuss now as we go forward. Okay, so Martin, actually, just while you're, while you're on that one, so you've got these um, uh, these categories sort of want to buy first timers, holders, and refinance uh, as we sort of run down. Um, uh, in terms of changing, like how do, how do you change people between those categories, and, and what are you seeing at the moment in terms of in terms of people shifting between those categories? Yeah, yeah, good question. So they are relatively stable, but obviously, you know, you're, you're a first-time buyer and then you become somebody who might refinance or trade up or trade down. So essentially, those households are identified at the point when we survey them. Now, we, we don't have a panel. We have effectively a statistically accurate sample of 1,000 each week based off the ABS. And that means that we can, at the point in time, simply identify them as to where they fit at any one point in time. So we don't track individual households over time. But we do know that over time, people do go through this life cycle. They want to buy, then they decide to buy and become a first-time buyer. And then they hold a property, they might refinance, they might consider trading up or trading down, and they also might go into investor land as well. So that's the way we do it. And what's interesting, of course, is that over time, people, individuals, then effectively can move from segment to segment. But statistically speaking, uh, other people are moving in other segments. So overall, the picture may be different at a macro level relative to individuals. Mm. But I guess, I guess I'm, I'm assuming that pe there's, uh, the people wanting to, to, to trade up is, sort of, uh, is probably not, not that great at the moment or people wanting to, I don't know, I, I guess it's probably the, that's probably the key one, isn't it, that, that sort of fits into this in terms of where people sit. Well, not... the interesting, yeah, the interesting thing, trading down was very, very active. So there were a lot of people up until quite recently who were sitting on quite large amounts of equity, particularly old households, and they were looking to sell. And what's interesting is that even now, I think the listings, the number of properties for sale are actually not falling that much at the moment. They're actually quite, quite high. And that's because there are still quite urge from those to get out while they can and try and save some of the equity that they've got. The trading up group were 
beginning to get more interested in buying back into the market because of the price falls, although in fact the price falls were not uniformly spread across the country or indeed across particular property, property types, but they've pretty much gone off the boil. The ones that were active were first-time buyers, so people who were trying to get into the market, attracted by the government incentive scheme, or bribe as I call it, uh, they've tended to sort of step on the sidelines now because of what's happened. So yeah, a lot of the action is in the trading down and then property investors. So there are a lot of property investors who actually have been trying to get out because the property investor calculus doesn't work anymore. In rentals are falling, property values are not growing, and uh, you know the issue of how you actually make an investment property work in this environment is probably beyond many. By the way, many property investors were relying on Airbnb, and of course the Airbnb sector is now completely stopped. So that's another reason why many investors are struggling. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? We we uh, we uh, we have a, an office in a WeWork building, and um, you know it's the same it's the same issue there. It's things look great, um, and, and you get to make lots of extra money uh, in, most of the time because you can um, you've got all these short term people who you can you can charge much higher rents to. But um, I think they're very much feeling it right now as as the Airbnb Airbnb people is basically saying you're getting paid a premium to 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 uh, rent out on a short-term basis because when you get downturns or, or, or things go wrong, all of a sudden you know your, your clientele evaporates and 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 you've got no recourse to, to to where the money's coming from. So yeah, I think we're certainly on that on that with you there. That there's a um, uh, that that game of the whole short you know asset liability mismatch is is what really comes to the fore at the moment. Whether you be a bank, whether you be a, a WeWork, or whether you be a an Airbnb holder, you know you really do notice it at this point. Correct, and of course, APRA changed the um, calculus as well in terms of how much could be lent to allow 80% vacancy rather than 100% vacancy rate as a, as a guide, right? Now, in my surveys, I'm now seeing vacancy rates are considerably lower than they were even six months ago for many investors. And uh, that's true whether you look across Sydney or whether you look across some of the regional centres or in Melbourne. Um, the property investment sector is really struggling at the moment. Mm. Yes, yes, but and, and and having said that, you know, I guess if you were a, um, you know, given given the speed of it as well, if you were someone sitting there thinking, hey, um, I really should get around to selling that property, and um, you know the the crisis hit and you went, hey, I really need to do it now, um, chances are your property is still only um, maybe just coming onto the market at the moment, you know, even if you even if you jumped very early, you know, it takes a couple of weeks to get all everything set up and and, and going. Yeah, so some of my industry contacts are suggesting that there have been quite a lot of inquiries from people saying, can I still put my property on the market? Of course, they can only do private sales. And then, of course, there's a debate about if you put a private sale into the market, do you get a reasonable um, estimate of what the value of the property is? You know, one of the issues about property prices generally is you need market discovery to be going on to know what property prices are doing. So if, if market sales drop dramatically, as I think they will, then it's going to be very hard to get a read on what real prices are. And uh, maybe some of the um, you know indices that are out there aren't actually giving a really strong read on precisely what's happening. Therefore, people are not confident about what they might end up with if they do so. Mm. The final the final auction clearance rate came out this morning for last weekend. It was the lowest I've ever seen at thirty seven percent. So yeah, not a lot of price discovery on offer there. And if you look, a lot of those were actually in the prior two weeks rather than last Saturday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so should we jump to the next one, the uh, Household Financial Confidence Index? 
Yeah, so one of the things we ask about is directly households, how they're feeling, right? And uh, I've been tracking this since um, 2013, and it's never been as low, but it dropped another 20 points this last month. So we were already low in our ultra low. And what's interesting is that the confidence levels are decaying, whether you look uh, at young people or old people, whether you look at property investors or unoccupied, it is consistent across the board, and it's driven by escalation concerns about job security, um, income definitely under pressure, cost of living still rising, um, debt is now a major issue. More people are waking up to the fact that the debt they're holding is actually, uh, you know, a real risk, and of course net worth has dropped. Um, for many as well, particularly those with share markets. And if you go on to the next slide... Actually, um, sorry, just Amanda, gonna... and just, just to yeah. confirm your financial confidence, you can go to the next slide, but just to confirm, the, can you just yeah. define your financial confidence index? just for yeah, those so basically, yeah, so basically what we ask is, we ask households a series of um, questions. Compared with 12 months ago, are you more confident or less confident about your job, about the amount of debt you hold, about the savings that you hold, your income, um, your cost of living, net worth those sorts of things and we then calculate based on their responses um you know those who are stronger those who are weaker and uh, the confidence is looking at their household financial confidence so it's quite specific on on those dimensions and the next slide um, if we go to that we can slice and dice it so we've actually got those who are mortgaged those who are in rents and those who are what i call free affluence so those are people with property but with no mortgages, often with uh, shares as well. And it's interesting that in the last month, it's the free affluence who've seen their confidence levels drop the most. Um, everybody's dropped, but in fact, the free affluence responding to very significant drops in the stock markets recently. So it gives you a real-time read as to how people are feeling. And of course, that then tells you about what they're likely to do because we also ask some forward-asking questions, forward-looking questions in terms of are you likely to transact, are you likely to buy, are you likely to sell? And I can tell you that uh, the number of people who are thinking of transacting in the next 12 months has dropped dramatically, despite what I said about people piling in immediately. Mm. And the other factor there is that many people are also now worried about the amount of debt they've got and are thinking of trying to refinance to try and get some of the cheaper loans that are being offered by the bank. So that's one of the major to-do lists that mm. many people have. So, so one of the questions that sort of jumps straight away to that to me is, I mean, it's obviously you know, it's obviously very sudden and sharp, but as, as you'd expect, I guess the, the levels that's fallen is, is hard to tell how significant that is or that isn't for, 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 for economies and, and everything like that. But um, so how far back does your data go for this one? goes back to 2013 so you can see that the trend data there is yeah. back to 2013 and i'm assuming that this is sort of similar in a way to some of the consumer confidence type you know i guess this is this is a much more granular look at how at, at, at some of the at what you see in say some of the other consumer confidence surveys that are, that are a lot broader and you can't you can't really aggregate them disaggregate them as as you can with your data but but Correct. in terms of the those types of things um when they do have a sudden shop um sudden drop uh, say it's the um, uh, during the financial crisis or uh, you know, I guess recessions. I guess you have to go fair back, fair way back to, to to the prior recessions in '90s and, and things like that. Um, the expectation usually is it takes a, a very long time for, for for these to actually come back. In turn, once they once they drop, it, it doesn't uh, confidence doesn't drop suddenly and then then bounce back suddenly when it when everything's clear. It seems to um, people seem to be a lot more circumspect and, and it takes a you know a, a length of time before you you get that recovery 
Um, what's your sort of expectation about the, you know, let's say, let's say it was an all clear, you know, virus solved, you know, vaccines, everything's all great. Um, you know, in a perfect world, how long would you, would you expect that to take to, to get back to a more normal level? Well, I think it's months rather than weeks. And I think it goes back to where unemployment's going to be. So I think jobs and unemployment is going to be the key to this, right? If in fact we get a resurgence in jobs and you know all the small businesses that were going to fall over don't fall over and can still employ yeah. we might see people then feeling a little bit more comfortable because in a way for most people getting money in and by the way this is all about cash flows we'll come on to in, in terms of mortgage stress money in money out right is, is sufficient money coming in to be able to deal with my financial commitments and my mortgage repayments or not that's the critical sort of question if those the answer that's no then there's very little that people can do other than hunker down and uh, just spend less. And remember that half of the economy is household consumption, right? So if that continues to drag, that's going to have a significant knock-on knock -on effect on the broader economy. If, in fact, it bounces back because people are actually feeling more confident about their financial status, then everything else flows. So I think unemployment is really the leading indicator, although it's a lagging indicator, it should be the leading indicator as well as yeah. to how quickly this is going to bounce back. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm very much on, very much on with you there. And that was where I was leading with these questions is because to me, the real the real thing, and I, um, I'd, I'd say, you know, obviously your data doesn't ha capture any of this, but I'm going to be fascinated to see how it changes over time is this. So we've got this job seeker um, uh, plan out there where basically, and I, th I think I've got this right, is, is you get fired, um, but then they say, well, no, your company's going to keep paying you, but, but we'll pay the company and they'll, they'll keep paying you 80% of your, your salary uh, up, to a certain, up to a certain level. The question is, the real question is, do, will people get that and feel like they still have a job and they still feel confident? Or will that be sort of relatively indistinguishable from being unemployed, except, um, you know, there's still a, there's, it's almost as if you're living off your own savings for, for a little while, but, but you still suffer that same sort of... Um, I guess the the same confidence shock that that you would have if you had been in, in, uh, unemployed anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've only got one week of data on because because it was announced last week, but the, mm. it's being re re regarded as a quasi dull rather than as a um, a replacement for existing income. Mm. And of course, the issue is that you might push um, people forward for a few months while this is there. But what happens after that? Yeah. What happens when the government's uh, support disappears? Because this is temporary. This is not a permanent change to the way that. Uh, incomes are being supported. It's not a UBI. I think we should have done a UBI personally rather than this. Um, it's all being funneled through the, um, the commercial sector. Uh, and that then is the, um, you know, the big question in terms of how this plays out. Yeah. Well, and the other, the other thing. Uh, can I, sorry, before we shift again, um, can I just ask a question in terms of sort of rebounds and V shapes and drop offs and what have you, Martin, um, when I look at your first chart there, what really strikes me before the cliff is just how dislocated confidence had become from the housing rebound. Uh, you know, like since 2016 when, you know, obviously we had the, the sort of Royal Commission bust, but then, you know, SCOMA gets elected and injects credit and we saw this price rebound, but it just confident, financial confidence in households, if anything, just steepened further down. And so it's like that we're kind of having this shock within a structure of deeply depressed sentiment already. Uh, and I'm just wondering if you could give us a bit of granularity on why you think 
that confidence had been sliding so hard and whether it will play a role in any possible rebound. Yeah, great question. The answer is it's all about income. Incomes have not grown in real terms since, what, 2014, 2012 for many households. Um, the cost of living are continuing to spiral higher uh, up until recently, probably still doing it now. Um, so many households, from a cash flow perspective, were actually feeling it. Plus, of course, the fact they had bigger mortgages. And whilst the mortgage interest rates were dropping, the actual amount they were paying was not dropping. And if you look at the uh, amount that people are paying on average, it's roughly the same as it was five, six, eight years ago. So that pincer movement of um, depressed income, um, also, by the way, lack of hours. So many people were underemployed and therefore they weren't getting any overtime. So that's another reason why incomes were compressed. I think that's the key. Um, so we've actually had an economy that has not been firing well for the last four or five years. And in the last six to 12 months in particular, we've seen a significant drop in household expectations of future income and ability to service so that's why the mortgage stress numbers are rising we'll look at that in a second and why some of the other factors are all playing in um so in a way the property market was a bit of a you know um, abnormality and by the way i think some of the indices were overstating the real movements if you look nationally but that's another story i guess yeah. And sorry, before we move on to that one, I just want to jump in on that that last one. The um, just talking about that whole UBI versus uh, versus company payment. For me, the the biggest, the best thing you could have done was to have something that actually encourages people to, companies to keep people employed. Whereas it seems to me, and I'm and I'm not completely on top of the whole the whole process, but it seems to me that the the um, the process almost seems to encourage companies now to go. Look, I can't really afford to keep. Um, you know, this person on, but if I fire them, I can keep paying them. You know, that, it's not like they're gonna, they'll keep getting their $750 a, a fortnight or, or a week or whatever to, to, to keep going. So, so I don't have to feel as bad about firing them. And I, and I almost wonder if that's actually gonna encourage people to fire. Whereas if it had been some, something that's sort of based around saying, yes, the payment mechanism might've been exactly the same, but it was based around companies having some, some sort of obligation to, to keep people employed and, and to keep them on, on the books. Um, so that when, you do get out of this; um, those people are straight back into work. It's sort of like saying, "Yes, yes, you, you do have to sit, you know, you do have to sit at home, and you know the, the, the payments coming via the government." But as soon as everything's right, then then you're back and working. Whereas at the moment, it seems the other way around that that's almost like, "No, no, I have to fire this person first, and then they can get their payments, and then um, rehire them again, rehi then rehire <laughs> them, or, or, or have to go through a whole hiring process afterwards." Yeah. And for most companies, especially the big ones, you know, there will have to be a hiring process afterwards. You're in effect suspending demand rather than pausing it. And firing yes. it up. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, what I think you're doing is massaging down the unemployment number. That's that's one of the reasons why they're doing it first. Mm. Second, secondly, because um, it would have been you know Westpac to what said 17, they've now taken it back to nine, right? Mm. Uh, secondly, the fact is that because of the way it's structured, you actually might want to keep on some of your people the higher incomes rather than lower incomes um, because there might be some tax advantage to doing it. Um, it's, a, it's a really weird formulation, in my view, that's going to have some significant unintended consequences. And uh, remember, of course, it doesn't cover casuals. It doesn't cover people who've been employed for less than a year. Uh, and I think acc accountants will be kept very busy also proving certain things about, um, you know, how much income or not a business has got compared with last year and all those things. There's a bunch of issues that flow off the back of this. Yeah, well, and that's how, that's that whole part, isn't it? So we've, we've really only had, what, four weeks of really sort of stricter shutdowns. 
and a lot of companies, especially the small businesses I know, um, you know, run on the on the on the basis of a, of a shoebox and a you know I'll try to sort everything out once a year when I have to pay my taxes. So to then ask them to yeah, can you just provide me with up to the, up to the minute effectively, um, you know. As at the end of February, things weren't too bad. So, you know, even it's not even your quarter end numbers. It's just you're sort of saying, well, mm-hmm. you know, even, even if you look at your quarterly numbers, you've got two thirds of a, a decent and one third, one third poor. So, yes. Anyway, let's, let's uh, jump on to mortgage yeah, stress. Yeah, Martin, just before we jump across to the uh, mortgage stress uh, uh, theme, although this is a, a, quite a nice segue. Um, so, obviously, you've got, uh, you know, this rapid deterioration in household um, confidence uh, in this index we've got on the, on the, on the page here. Um, mm. Just your thoughts, I guess, from a corporate confidence point of view, and I draw um, as an example QBE pulling new mortgage insurance on people in COVID affected industries um do you feel that you know it's basically it's tipping is it tipping fuel on the fire and perhaps well then we can segue into our into our next slide <laughs> yeah well certainly um my sme surveys which i haven't covered in, in this presentation um about half of smes have cash flow is issues now so you know they're not going to get any um relief for some time and they have major issues so many will be struggling um with regards to the interaction between uh mortgage mortgage payments, mortgage stress, that's the really interesting question because, of course, essentially banks are now beginning to offer mortgage payment holidays. In other words, capitalise the mortgages for a few months. Um, That creates some space for those people who may still be employed. But if you aren't employed, it doesn't make any difference because you won't be having enough in way of support to be able to necessarily make those mortgage, um, uh, you know, so they don't have to pay the mortgage, but they've got other things going on as well. So that's that's the point there. And one of the things I keep coming to is you've got to look at households' finances in the round. You can't just look at the mortgage payment in isolation because, of course, households have many other commitments as well, things like school fees and uh, um, childcare costs. I'm already seeing a lot of people pulling um, their kids out of childcare or not using childcare and trying to get refunds on those on on school fees to try and deal with this cash flow crisis. This cash flow crisis is the real critical issue that I think people aren't talking about yet, but they should be. Hmm. Absolutely. Um, and so uh, if we roll through um, the uh, the page we've got up here was just that mortgage stress examining the, the household cash flows. Um, what, have you, what, what do you think are the are sort of the key components there, I guess, working a little bit on that last, uh, that last line? Yeah, so um, the, the, the real issue is, of course, that... Um, we look at cash flow rather than actually a 30% of income. That's the standard rule that everybody quotes but doesn't really tell you very much. So I look at real cash flow. And essentially what we're looking at is if households are in stress, that means they've got less cash coming in than they're actually paying out. If they're deeply negative, let's say 10% gap, then they're in severe stress. And I think we need to make some comparisons here. WA is a really interesting case study because WA has been in strife for some years. Unemployment was a lot higher there, under the same credit conditions as the rest of the country, and we had higher levels of mortgage stress, higher levels of price falls. And so the correlation between mortgage stress as an early predictor of what happens to home prices is actually, I think, quite interesting. It doesn't happen immediately because mortgage stress is something you can manage by hunkering down, drawing down on deposits if you've got those in, you know, in deposit accounts or putting them on credit cards, but it gets you in the end. And uh, that, I think, is, by the way, also we look at rental stress separately too, and we're seeing some quite interesting correlations there. So that's, that's the way we do it, and that's what we, um, we come to. And perhaps if we look at uh, the next one, which is the stress 
trends to march now the yeah. yellow line is and, the and actually before you jump into that martin it's worth just noting yeah. as well so that so the let me get this right the, the wa jump in in unemployment was probably only about one and a half two percent i think it went yep. from very low to to a little bit above a little bit above average in terms of versus the rest of the country so so we're obviously um you know mortgage stress on that under those great financial conditions um and yeah and so there's obviously and, a, a, and in, in, remember interest rates were being cut Yes. Mm. At the same time, right? Yeah. Mm. So, so effectively, it should have been better than it was. But prices in WA are down what twenty one percent on average. In some postcodes, like um, uh, you know, some of them down the down the west coast are down thirty percent. Mm. Um, if you think of places like Mandurah, that's if you like my example of a case study of the worst of the worst. Um, there, you've got thirty percent drop in home prices. You've got social issues. You've got druggies. You've got people trying to sell and not being able to sell because they've got negative equity. Um, I worry that what we see in the East uh, will be what we saw in the West because essentially we've got some of the same f uh, issues now beginning to flow over. Yeah, absolutely. And a, and a bigger jump in unemployment. Uh, yeah, bigger and probably more significant in terms of the shock. Um, so okay, so... Yep. Go on. I was going to say, it, it, we'll jump across to the, uh, the young family and the urban fringe, you feel, are the most exposed to this? Um, yeah, we j just go back one slide. You've, you've probably jumped ahead. Um, let me just go on the mortgage stress trend slide okay. first. Sure. So this is this is the critical, this is the killer slide, frankly. So the yellow line is the one. This is my mortgage stress trend from 2000. So it's right the way through the last global financial crisis. And you can see there that last time in 2008, we were tracking up and then we actually eased back. The reason we eased back was because rates were cut and we didn't have a significant um, uh, issue really with households in stress but then it started to build and it started to build over the last two or three years for the reasons I explained in terms of uh, incomes the fact that if, uh, mortgages were bigger and then we've started to see an acceleration back in February it was 32.9% of households more than a million this month it's jumped to 37.2% of households so wow. literally another 200,000 households are now registered as stress from a mortgage perspective. And you run that forward based on what I'm thinking is gonna be playing out, we're going up to 41.7%, right? Now, that is a huge deal because it means that we go from 1.08 million households in February to 1.36 million in March, um, directly related to job cuts, directly related to financial pressures. Now, obviously some of those will be alleviated in the short term by the fact that they will have mortgage repayment holidays. But by the way, my surveys say that about half of people who've been applying for holidays are not getting them. So it's not universally accessible and available so far. I'm not sure why that is, whether it's a process issue or whether it's that the banks are actually still replying some responsible lending criteria to the situation. Um, and I remember that uh, Shane Elliott said, look, you know, we can help for a period of time, but eventually, you know, not everyone's going to be able to survive and i'm thinking that's probably what we're seeing actually um, the interesting so, thought around that while you while you're mm -hmm. on the point though is so i wonder how keen banks would be to actually i'm assuming they're not going to be very keen to, to repossess and to and to be trying to sell properties into uh, you know over over skype to people <laughs> well you're absolutely right and in, in in the if you look at the us there was a massive um situation where lots of people started to default and the banks didn't do anything they didn't try and sell because they knew that if they tried to put more property into the marketplace mm. that would actually just depress properties 
even more. And so many people in the US are still, you know, years later, still living in properties that they no longer are paying mortgages on, but they're still in the properties. So there is an overhang. And of course, the other thing is, do you crystallize the, the, the loss? Do you want to crystallize the loss? And I think it's very interesting that in the UK, the banks there have actually um, basically got the government to stop all house transfers and sales because they don't want to get a read on property prices. So effectively, if you freeze the market, you can freeze your book. <laughs> yeah, sounds a bit like we've been complaining about the super, the uh, well, the industry funds this week sort of on, on, on their unlisted assets doing doing similar things where they're just saying, let's if we just write them in at, at the old, at last month's prices or the months before's prices, then we don't, everything looks much, much better. Pick a value, any so, value. Yeah. And it's a very interesting question. What's the obligation on banks to um, reflect changes of property values in their portfolios? The answer is it's very vague, hmm. right? Can I, can I ask you, Martin, do you uh, want to take a punt on how much distressed property this chart would represent? Um, yeah, so defaults are different from mortgage stress, right? So defaults are still quite low. Um, they're about, um, you know, three times higher in Western Australia relative to uh, the East Coast. So we don't have a vast number at the moment. About eighty to 90,000 properties would currently be on the distressed pile. That would double. I think, under my modelling, based on what I'm seeing now over the next, um, uh, you know, three to four months, could go higher. So it's not a vast number, but it's enough to be slightly concerning. The worry, though, is, of course, that many of those will be LMI'd. And I think that the LMI um, sector is probably going to feel the pinch first. Um, wouldn't be surprised to see if... Um, just, sorry, just, just for people out there, that's lending, lending mortgage insurance. Lending mortgage yeah, lenders mortgage insurance, so 80% yeah. above. Now, we, we already heard QBAs... QBE stopped basically, um, you know, providing new finance for some types of borrowers. Um, and uh, now also begs the question: Do you remember that 95% um, guarantee the government offered for first-time buyers? That's looking quite interesting now, isn't it? Scamo mm. Prime, man. Yeah. Well, and you know, we've just but we've just added whatever 200 billion, have we? 150 billion, 200 billion to the to the national debt. So what's what's another? Yeah. Yeah, it's in the roundings. Who yeah, cares? that's right. Throw it on the pile. Yeah. <laughs> now, if I go to the next slide, I can then just decompose this because this is really interesting. So if you look at it from a segmentation perspective, right, young growing families, around 72% um, of young growing families, which include those first-time buyers, are most exposed on, from a mortgage stress perspective. And then we've got uh, other segments like the battling urban disadvantage fringe. Um, now, they're people who are often in those uh, new estates on the outskirts of towns, a long way from anywhere. Um, now, the th issue of defaults, I think they'll stay low because of the mortgage holidays. And if the unemployment rate, let's, go, let's say, goes to 10%, which is what I think the job keepers will keep it to, that will have a bit of a lid in the short term. I am very most interested about some of these affluent households because they're very exposed due to market leverage. And uh, they've all got margin, already got margin calls and they've got multiple investment properties. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see some of those more affluent, although they are relatively lowly represented in terms of the uh, segmentation, actually being some of the first to uh, fall over. Mm. And, uh, and obviously we saw that in the financial crisis. You know, there's a lot of... Uh the financial markets are quite big in, especially in, particularly in Sydney, in terms of uh, big employers of, of people with uh, big mortgages. And so, um, when the when the bonuses stop, then uh, yeah, a lot of them have 
have bought well, property on the basis of bonuses. A, a lot of people have structured their um, situation around debt and more debt, and it being just you know part of what they service through their incomes. But if the incomes get shot, then the debt becomes unserviceable very quickly because of the leverage. And just as property values when they go up helps, when property values go down, it hinders dramatically. Mm. Yes, yes, and there's no, and you're not getting any any rent rises, and you're probably seeing much greater vacancies. So yes. Yeah, well, I had somebody say to me they've negotiated their rental down 20%. That's somebody in Sydney. They mm. went and said, look, I can continue to pay, but I can't pay as much. They agreed a 20% drop in their rent. Mm. Wow. Temporarily or? Uh, permanent. Mm. Yep. Property yeah. investors desperate. Now, if I go to the next slide, uh, you can look at it by states. So this is looking at Tasmania. Tasmania has the highest proportion of households in stress. That's a combination of the recent run-up in prices and also the fact that incomes are very low relative to other states. Victoria, though, in absolute count, has the highest number of households in stress. Um, interesting, I've been watching the uh, Victorian property sector. A lot of, um, uh, uh, I think, extravagant lending is now coming home to roost. New South Wales, of course, is there too. And then you've got the WA one as well. But the largest movements actually were in Victoria and New South Wales in the last month. Um, WA, of course, continues to be declining because of what's happened over there over many, many months and years. Mm, fascinating. Uh, what, what component do you think of this um, may have an impact with the, the basically vaporisation of, um, of population increase through immigration? Do you think that's sort of coming through the numbers yet or is that sort well, of something I that's on the horizon? Well, part of it. I mean, the, the demand for property is interesting, right? So demand has come off the boil and, you know, migration is definitely um, down. It's probably out now, Zero. Given, <laughs> given the, uh, given, given the um, you know, travel ban. Hmm. Uh, overseas uh, in, investments, there's a lot of... Um, information that suggests that some of those overseas investors are now trying to sell their properties even now particularly from china um we know that the um migration from western australia to the east was quite strong so we saw lots of vacancies lots of um properties that had no interest at all even when they discounted by 20 or 30 percent uh so that definitely is part of the picture um we also know that there's still been quite recent appetite down the east coast stoked of course by recent property um price um, increases and in all the spruikers, you know, Domain was saying the other day, hey, great time to buy an apartment because prices are low, you know. Yes. Would you buy now? Well, I certainly wouldn't. Um, you know, so demand, I think, is probably going to be there. But as people get more hit by this income shock and uh, the economic shock, I think demand is going to dissipate. And if you think about supply, demand and equilibrium, how that translates to property price falls, you can start to see why it is that maybe property prices will begin to start falling. Sure thing. Okay, yeah, very good. Um, if we jump across to the major centres as well, just mindful of your time as well. We've got a few more slides to get through, Martin. Yeah, okay. So just in terms of the, the just by regions, it's worth showing that Melbourne uh, and Sydney have the largest counts, as you'd expect, Queensland, but then some of the regional areas too. So the point to make is mortgage stress is not just something that lives in the major centres. It's actually quite widely spread. Uh, if I look across Queensland, for example, up in the Darling Downs and around there or Mackay, uh, I can see it in South Australia. Or I can see it pretty much everywhere I look. Now that's worth just bearing in mind because, of course, everybody focuses on just the two major markets and we need to look beyond that. And if I go to the next slide, you can just see how the postcodes play out. So Fountain's Gate, Narrow Warren, has the largest number of households. And the Ballarat one at 3350 um, is also quite high as well. And uh, so you can see that Victoria is right up there. Mm, absolutely. Can I say something to add, David? Uh, well, that, I mean, that 
definitely looks like an immigration story, wouldn't you say, Martin? I mean, that, those are all of the um, fresh fast migrant, growing. the fast-growing fast fresh migrant areas with the yep. secondary and, markets and and what have you. I mean, not necessarily the lowest incomes. What's interesting there, the average incomes in some of those postcodes were not the lowest in the state. Yeah, sure. I mean, you've only got to take a tour around the Melbourne Fringe to see, you know, kind of endless paddocks of McMansions popping up all over the place. And if you talk about that, look on the next slide. So this is actually geomapping. You can see where some of those hotspots are. So the darker colours are the hotspots. Beaconsfield around that area, that's where you find some of those McMansions and some of those high-density areas as well. So often above average incomes and home prices, um, you know, large um, estate corridors, often quite small plots, perhaps limited infrastructure. There's a there's a pattern here. Yeah. I actually think it's possible that over the next 12 months, at least, we might see immigration go into reverse. Because, I mean, it, it's got, it does have a very strong market component to it in, insofar where as... To, where would you run to is the question. Yeah, well... I mean, well, I mean, people might just go home, eh, because they'll feel feel safer there. I guess in in at least for temporary migrants. Uh, and and secondly, if there's no jobs, you know, why do you stay in a foreign country? Mm. You know, I think you go home to mum and dad, or you know, you retrench. Yep. So, I do wonder about those fringe developments. How much pressure they're going to see. Yeah, good point. Now, if I just go quickly to the scenarios. Um, sure. So we, we run scenarios off the back of our model as well. And so slide, um, uh, let's go to the scenario. So 36, 24 to 36 months later, this is my estimate of what I think is going to go on. So you can see there that I've got some different scenarios based around what's happening with um, the health issues. Um, we're, I think, in the global disruption or the longer-term crunch scenarios. So I'm looking at home prices dropping 20 to 30% or 30 to 45%. And remember that if you build the average home price up from the bottom of land, construction costs, and amenity costs, on average prices in Australia are still 40% over where they should be based on any ratio you'd like to mention. So there's plenty of opportunity for prices to fall. And so that's where I'm putting my stake in the ground at the moment based on the data that I've currently got. Hmm. Okay, fantastic. Sorry, can I just ask, are they, are they real or nominal prices, Martin? So this is basically um, taking the price today and overlaying inflation. So they're actually uh, taking account of the inflation as well. Okay, so they're real. So okay. What, what, yep. Sorry, what, what's the difference going to be, David, over the next three years? Do you think? Inflation. Diff- two, two oh months. right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sure. Yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty small. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yes. Could, but could, I, but, could, I, but might, I do might, take account help, of inflation. Might help to show it in real numbers. Yeah. Yeah. The household deflator might raise prices. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, very good. So, look um, before we roll into the uh, investment outlook. Oh, oh, no, no, so, okay, so let's let's have a let's have a, just a run through this um, some of these categories because I think there's some interesting things within this. So, so your current mortgage stress levels were it just jumped to 37. Was that right? Sorry. Yep. Okay. Correct. Okay. So, so we're so as you said, unless the local difficulty is sort of off off the table, and so and that's. Um, uh, and I'm just wondering the the bank losses though maybe those two have been flipped around that might have been us accidentally flipping those around so of nine basis points then 15 for the the longer term crunch. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm assuming I'm assuming that essentially the uh, issue with regard to mortgage repayments and capitalisation will run longer. Yep. So that's yeah. why I've left that lower. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, because I think uh, you know the longer term crunch. So we're obviously almost there on the um, on the mortgage stress side, but yep. the unemployment is potentially already almost there, or potentially already already past that, isn't it? In terms of um, could be. It's, it's yeah, and we, we won't sort of find that out for for, for for months until we really know. But yeah, yeah. that is a um, and and the question on. Uh, the RBA rates sort of going further down. What, what it's, what's your take and what's your assumption there? That well, they, they keep they keep saying we no, we're not going to take rates lower. That was what they said in the uh, release yesterday. Mm. Um, and of course, they are theoretically actually at zero because of the um, the, the range that they use. Uh, I still think that negative rates is we should we shouldn't write that off immediately completely. I, yeah. I, the worry I have is that this gets out of hand with the amount of debt in the system. Um, they're yeah. going to have to do other stuff too. Uh, scary though it is. And uh, therefore, you start worrying about bailing in and bailing out and all of those horrible things that uh, could be part of the story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we, we could do another whole episode. We probably will at some stage on, on the whole. The whole Just one more, one more question before you wrap up. Hmm. Um, Martin, um, when and how much um, credit rationing do you see coming? Lots. Uh, the, all the evidence is as rates go lower and uh, even with the stimulation and support from central banks, banks tend to lend less. Look at what happens in Germany in the Eurozone. In fact, one of the one of the major reports came out and said the trouble is that banks lend less. They um, are, can't take deposit rates lower because basically deposits come out of the system if they do that. So they have to go into more speculative ventures, derivatives, those sorts of things. Um, I think a credit crunch is part of the story here. So therefore, we might expect APRA to uh, loosen up as well. Oh, just a bit more. Just why not? They've they've, released, <laughs> they, they've, re they've reduced the issues with regard to defining delinquencies. They've already, you know, opened the taps. Yes. I, would, I wouldn't be surprised. They are desperate not to let property prices fall, but I think they gravity wins, in my view. Unemployment wins. Yeah. Yeah, that's and that's Unemployment. what uh, we've been making that point as as you have, I'm sure as well that that. Um, you know, most of the most of the semi-good property, uh, most of the semi-good policy options you had to try and keep poly pro, pro, property prices high. We've already used that over the last few years, and so now you've uh, you've really got to you know dig, scrape the bottom of the barrel for for the worst possible policy ideas you, you can find to try and uh, to try and prop things up for just that little bit longer. Correct, and I think everyone's thinking short term, but you know we've got to think longer term, right? The amount of debt in the system uh, is high. The amount of government debt's now very high. Um, the economic outlook, to me, looks pretty shaky. We, um, we've, thanks for all that, uh, there, Martin. Uh, we've obviously, uh, we might just quickly open up for questions as well um, before we round out with our investment outlook. Um, and look, this has actually probably been one of the more um, popular uh, chat. Chats. I don't know if it's questions or chats that are coming through, but I thank everybody that's tuning in and, and dropping in some questions or comments. Um, I've got one here, uh, and this is sort of in, in the theme of what we were just talking about then, but given the government's recent economic interventions, do you agree that any potential collapse in house prices is exposed to a major risk of political intervention, perhaps as opposed to a, um, a central bank intervention? Is that sort of something you see on the horizon? Well, political intervention has been there right from the start. We don't have a free and fair market with regard to property. We haven't for years. Um, they, will, they will do whatever they can to try and keep the bubble up. Yeah, the critical question is, is uh, are they out of ammo, not whether they'll use it? Yeah. Yep. I figure they've got pretty good... They'll, they'll think of other things to do and it'll get, they'll get worse and worse. Each, each idea will be worse and worse for the long term and, and probably have less and less of an effect on, mm -hmm. on, on the market as, as we yep. go in. A uh, couple more. I've got uh, another one here from uh, Hi, Hi Man. Uh, 
So based on the WA experience, with some factor uh, built in for the COVID cash flow issues, uh, bear with me, just zoom through, there we go. Um, what was the, uh, oh, hang on, roared through it all, here we go. How long do you estimate before uh, this translates into some form of house price decline in the other states? So uh, how long are we talking before we start seeing some falls? And there's actually quite a few in relation to that, so you're actually scooping up quite a few questions in this one answer. <laughs> As you probably imagine. Right, well, I'll, I'll have a quick crack at that first. Um, I really don't know. I think I think you're, you're in the. I've called it the Wally Coyote moment, where you know he's. We know he's. We know he's off the cliff. We can see there's nothing underground. Um, I don't know how long, much longer he's going to stay suspended where he is, but um, I think the the government's going to try and do that for as long as they can and do what they can to try and to try and keep it there. But um, at some stage, uh, gravity's as you said, gravity's going to take over. Um, look, I couldn't see it lasting Gravity six months. Always wins. Yeah, I, could, I couldn't see it lasting six months. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm somewhere in the zero to six range. Probably but need to have an auction, hold an auction in order to get a price discovery as well. Yeah. As you say. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave to you, Martin and David. Yeah, well, I think it's already started. I mean, yeah, it might, it might be that we see a lack of transactions that opens up a void of information for a while. Uh, but that's just a price gapping. And when they come back, you'll just find that you're 20% lower. Um, but uh, I mean, the, the daily indices that, that we follow at CoreLogic, which are obviously lagged, um, they're not yesterday, even though they're reported daily, have started to weaken. And uh, I think, it, you know, realistically, the market would already be falling, probably nationally. What do you say, Martin? I agree. Uh, the price is already falling. Uh, yeah. the, in, the, the index is um, one lens. Other indices from other sources are actually already reporting deeper falls. So I think we're going to see falls. Okay, very good. Right, well, we've, um, there's, there's plenty of comment in here. I'm struggling to actually find um, a lot of questions, though. So um, <laughs> I think it, speak, it speaks to a lot yeah. of um, fervor that there is in, in the topics that we're talking about. Everyone wants to put in, but um, outside of that, I think we've also possibly means we've covered off on it quite well as well. So I'll take that yeah. one. But um, <laughs> well, one of the questions actually popped in as sort of more of a comment about you know won't, won't the RBA just start buying houses? And I've, been, I've joked about this in the past that saying you know in, in the Japanese central banks out there buying started by buying government bonds and then went into corporate bonds and then they went into buying equities and to whether uh, whether we'll be changing our mandates here to, to buy houses, but but effectively that's what what they're going to try and set up, set up to do, isn't it? Is it to try and set up and say, um, not directly, but but basically saying how can we pump money into people that will then go out and buy houses, and and it's it's that part about can you get the confidence in people? And um, you know, my my take would be that um, you know that's the type of bad idea that we're talking about, is saying it, it's going to how how much incentive can I shove down people's throats to try and actually convince them that, that a house it's well worth them buying a house at, at this point in time, and um, I would be uh, I guess I guess for for any listeners I I'd be trying to resist any temptation you you feel and any bribes that get get thrown your way in terms of that, but um, I don't know if anyone else if you David or or uh, Martin you've got it sort of uh, ideas about where the next. Uh, how the RBA is going to try and shove money into people's hands to get them to buy houses? Well, they'll buy they'll buy everything, and they will actually continue to um, uh, go into all of those different avenues. But the point is, at the end of the day, unless households feel confident, they're not going to spend. And this is that's why I don't think this is going to be V-shaped. This is going to be a long, slow grind. I think. Mm. Mm. I'm inclined to agree with that. Uh, the RBA is already buying just about everything it's going to buy. It'll be buying financial assets, not houses. But APRA is clearly uh, the next 
came off the rank. I mean, if we if if banks start to tighten lending criteria, then April will loosen them. And, and the question then comes back to um, the next question. One that's up there is saying uh, UK banks have stopped paying dividends, mm. and uh, the uh, New Zealanders said no more uh, no more dividends from from Australian banks in New that are that are in New Zealand. They can't send the the, the dividends back to head office now. They've got to keep those in in there. Um, you know, David, I think you were sp speaking this morning about um, having uh, dividend reinvestment plans, and but because there's a, this huge uh, a huge underswell of um, people investing in Australia who have invested in banks and, and want it for their, their frank dividends. Um, you know, I guess your thoughts around that and, and Martin, then the same question to you about, you know, bank dividends and what, what you're seeing on that front. Well, I think they're toast anyway, but uh, I don't think there's enough courage in the regulators or independence from capture to do what they should be in terms of containing moral hazard, which is what New Zealand and Europe and the UK are doing. Uh, I mean, we put that suggestion this morning about dividend reinvestment as a kind of hopeful, hopeful alternative, uh, which maybe they'll go for, but I wouldn't be equally surprised to, to see the spectacle of the banks just, you know, disgorging capital to shareholders right up to the point where they raise capital from new shareholders or from, from lenders. Yeah, or government money, basically. Or, or government money, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I have zero faith in in the regulars containing the Aussie banks to any kind of acceptable, measuring them on any sort of acceptable social norm or licence to operate. <laughs> I, I, I put the government, the regulators and the banks on the same side of the ledger rather than over, <clears throat> overseeing each other. They're all on the same page and that's the problem. I think that's right. If we, if we had Labor, there's a bit of a maybe, but uh, definitely not the coalition. They're all in bed together. Mm. Yeah, so the question yeah, the question on, on that whole dividend front is, um, yeah, whether you just see effectively they're paying, I guess for the listeners, if, what, what David's talking about is if, if a bank pays out a dividend, um, they could then also do a dividend reinvestment plan, which basically then uh, raises that much capital from, from other shareholders or, or from the people who decide not to take the cash and just take it, which effectively is just a way, really. So, so it's a zero-sum game in, in terms of there's no actual money going out or, or whatever money goes out also comes back in. But it's really just a bit of a tax dodge in terms of it actually just lets gets rid of the franking credits from the banks out to out to people, which, um, oh, look, you know, in the end, if it's a... If that helps people feel a little bit better about about their lives and 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 get some spending, then it's probably a um, yeah, you know, it's, it's a net net wash. But it's it'll all come back to for me it's that whole part about as you said, everyone's sitting on that same side of the ledger. W will there be? Will we actually have some moral hazard? Um, and and will you get a blowback against that against banks paying out dividends while um, while other ones? And, and I'd, I'd say probably yes, but but that might be, not be for another six or twelve months before that happens. Well, where you got to ask where the blowback's going to come from? Well, I mean, it'll come from it'll come from the people on this podcast. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Hold on. You know, like uh, it won't come from from the mums and dads who who want the divvies. It won't come from the government. It won't come from from the press. Yeah. It wouldn't wouldn't you know know if a bull was up them. So, uh, I just this is why I have no faith. Well, there's no account. There's no accountability in yeah. the system. Yeah. Well, and I guess it's a question about, isn't it? Who, it's going to be who's going to be blamed for it when? Because because that's that's the key thing now is is we just need to work at is is all governments are trying to work on the blame shifting, 
And so well, it's easy. It's the virus. Yeah. Well, and and possibly China. It looks like is 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 more is increasingly so. The new scapegoat. So the government yeah. was always looking for something they could basically deny accountability for all the bad decisions they've taken over many years, and. Uh, the health issue with basically is a wonderful scapegoat to do things that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to get away with. Mm. Yeah, it disguises your that that um, four or five year uh, chart of um, declining confidence, doesn't it, Martin? Mm. You know, we've had four or five years of effective driving the economy and the household sector in particular into the ground, yeah. uh, and now the virus will be able to take the blame for all of that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it's that whole thing as well. If you you run you run your systems to the complete limit with with absolutely no no room for error, and then something happens, and and you say, oh well, there you go. You know, it's yeah. Well, some people have been saying for years, debt's a problem, household yeah. debt's a problem, yeah. and I say again, household debt is a problem. Mm. Well, okay, let's give, in, in the interest of time, we might just jump to um, I'll just jump to our investment outlook. Thanks, thanks for that, um, Martin. Did you want to? Uh, actually, okay. Let me let me jump in. I'll do. I'll quickly do the investment output, and then we'll then we'll let you do a quick wrap up to um to tell us where you can where people can find more about you. Perfect. So so just on our investment side, so we've um uh, just wanted to put this for uh, investors in our funds. So uh, the month end's just finished. For most of the um, most of the funds we're we're running are um have significantly or all of them have significantly outperformed over the month. Um, our income fund did the best, was up a little bit versus the ASX down sort of twenty something percent. Um, the growth fund, which is our highest risk one, was was down a little bit under one percent, um, and then our uh, both our all our direct uh, shareholdings, um, so the ones with direct international and our direct Australian funds, uh, both outperformed by about um, six or seven percent over their uh, respective indices. Um, in terms of our investment outlook going forward. Uh, Coming back, you know exactly exactly what Martin was saying. You know, unemployment is is our number one issue as well, and trying to work out, um, you know, there's there's been there's a shift from saying, okay, we're not going to call them unemployed, we'll, we're going to call keep calling them employed, but they're going to be paid by the government, you know, via companies, and so there's really not a lot of difference, um, and and trying to work out what the effect is on people because that's the one, employment is usually. Um, a very lagging indicator, but it's also very slow to come back when you when you go through crises. And so, if um, the the more people that can stay employed, in our view, then the faster the um, the recovery will be. But I suspect we've already missed our chance to to keep that. And I, I think the um, you will end up with with significant numbers of unemployed, if not in in official statistics, at least in in uh, in the way people look at their look at themselves and 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 their own jobs, which is yeah, which is the big issue. So in terms of the, the three main asset classes we're looking at, um, equities. So look, the, the, the issue is at the moment is consensus earnings are completely useless. Um, they haven't, you haven't seen the downgrades and it's a bit of a, I guess it's, it's, it's not a, there's a lot of analysts who sit and, and cover stocks who basically um, key in whatever the management have told them. Is, that's, that's their forecast is they, they ask management, what are you gonna earn next year? And, and, and then management will say 5% and, and they'll then say, oh, okay, let me put a little bit different. I'll call it six or I'll call it four. Um, and so because management haven't been issuing guidance, um, generally analysts haven't been changing their numbers at all and to, for, for a lot of it. And so, uh, yeah, so I'd just say any, anything you're looking at on the consensus basis, um, I'd be very, very careful to, to, to try and work out you know, how much basis is behind that. Um, so we so we haven't seen the earnings yet. Um, we think it'll be at least at least probably fifteen to twenty percent down. Um, you'll you'll get much bigger write down. So this year will be even bigger. But but I guess as a, as a longer term perspective, um, you need to keep in mind as well that companies have been running gearing at at, at elevated levels. Um, 
uh, and they're going to companies are going to pull that back. So if they're running a gearing pretty close to as 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 the maximum level um, going forward, they're going to have to pull that back, and that's going to mean lower earnings for shareholders. Um, we're going to have a big deglobalization. De um, companies are going to be uh, so so you're not going to have 100% of your supply chain in China. You're going to spread it out, and that's going to be more costly. Uh, there's going to be you're going to need in, increased redundancy throughout people's systems. They're going to say, well, just in case something happens, I better have you know, something in this country that can run, and something in another country that can run the same thing, and that's that's costly as well. And just a whole supply chain movements that sort of they're all going to be a negative drain on costs. On the flip side, you are probably going to see reduced rent and reduced travel. Um, so depending upon some that'll affect some companies more than others. And you'll certainly see new efficiencies when when things change, um, like people go through sudden shocks and they have to change their entire working process. You will find some companies will find that the, the new ways are better and, and and there will be efficiencies. But but the net negative is is um is on equities, and so we're still avoiding that until we sort of get a better view of of, of earnings falls and recoveries. Um, uh, with bonds, your big your key thing there is. Uh, is there inflation coming um, from from all the money that's being thrown at it from governments versus uh, can I get safety from these from uh, and so it's, it's this trade off about if, if governments put too much into it then you're going to get inflation um, we think the uh, the safety trade is still the the play there um, although having said that we're, we're starting to lighten up or certainly starting to look at lightening up on some of our positions as as they keep falling. Um, and then uh, the Aussie dollar is is the key one there is just sort of looking at. Um, uh, what's going to happen? Is is the Aussie dollar going to keep being a a, um, a a shock absorber for the economy? And the parts there, what's really going to drive that is, are we going to see this massive global stimulus where everyone's out building infrastructure, um, which is sort of a, a common mean, uh, theme you see out there? And if that's the case, then you get a lot of demand for commodities, which could then you know eventually drive the Australian dollar higher or, or well sooner if people think it's coming sooner versus has there been disruption to all the supply chains and all the demand and so um, you'll see the Aussie dollar lower because of uh, commodity prices just aren't being used and, and we're, we're certainly leaning more on the dis disruption side in that um, it's very hard to, to get out and spend lots of money on stimulus when um, when people still need to be in lockdowns and um, and, and, and these bi the big big projects that you talk about they're not projects that can, you can turn on tomorrow they're all projects that take a considerably long longer time anyway I'll let, might leave it at that for the investment side and maybe um, Martin, if you want to give us some... Yeah, Martin, so look, uh, thanks very much for your time today. Um, and uh, would you mind just sharing with our audience, of course, how they can get in touch and follow some of your work? Yeah, sure. Of course, there's the Digital Finance Analytics blog at digitalfinanceanalytics.com. That's where we post all of our um, analysis. Uh, there's also the YouTube channel, which is actually called Walk the World, and that's uh, full of uh, videos that we make. Uh, you can also follow me on DFA Analyst at Twitter as well. So those are where we are found most of the time. Um, and uh, I'll be posting the more detailed analysis from the mortgage stress and from the financial confidence index over the next two or three days. Lovely. Looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to that one. And uh, we're looking forward to getting you back on the show uh, sometime soon as well, Martin. Always, always a pleasure to have you on board and, and sharing your thoughts. Glad to uh, spend the time with you and the audience and uh, always happy to come back. All the best. Okay, we'll talk Take soon. Care. Thank you. So coming up next week, we have John Denez, who's the CIO of uh, Paragon Funds. He's had 14 years of financial experience in the financial markets and he's been co-founding uh, Paragon since uh, 2012 and he sits obviously as the Chief Investment Officer. So we're looking forward to having a chat to him next Thursday. Same bat time, same bat channel, Damien? 
Yeah, so John's a, a long, short manager, so a bit different to some of the guys we've had on here before. And so, um, yeah, it'd be very interesting to see how how uh, how he's trying to play it from both the long side and the short side. And, and he invests a lot of in small caps as well as large caps. So just sort of seeing where he's trying to trying to find safety in this market. Yeah, it'd be fascinating to, uh, to check out his thoughts given uh, everything that's going on at the moment. So we look forward to catching you then. Cheers.